Lord, we ask you to bless this time, bless us as we study your word. If anybody's coming, we ask you to bring them quickly. Uh, we ask you to just give peace and calmness and help us to study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 54, we're continuing this, this picture of the church or uh, being blessed. So Isaiah 54, starting at verse 6. For the Lord hath called you as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth which has refused, which was refused, says the Lord. For a small moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. In a little wrath I hid my face for, from you for a moment, but, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For this was, this, for for this is as the waters of Noah unto me, for I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be wroth with you, nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, says the Lord that has mercy upon you. So we're looking here, he's continuing this description we, he started out this, this uh, chapter with sing, O barren one, and sing aloud, you that have never given birth, enlarge your place, break forth in, in your righteousness, and don't fear, you shall not be made ashamed, for your maker is your husband. And then it says, the Lord hath called you as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit. You know, and this is that picture of somebody who is totally rejected. And God says, I have called you who is totally broken, you know, that doesn't think anybody loves you. And when we're witnessing to people, we hear that a lot. Nobody loves me. Nobody, you know, nobody wants me. God, I am so bad. God doesn't even want me. Hear God saying, I'm calling you. I, he calls the world even when they feel like they're rejected. Even when we feel like we've been rejected because we're not close to him, God is still calling out and saying, I have not rejected you. And this is our call to people. When we're witnessing to people, when we're sharing with people, God is not rejected. He is calling out to that person and says, I have called you the, and a wife of the youth which has, when you have refused or been rejected. Okay, uh, and he's talking to the woman in this particular picture that has been betrothed to a man who, when it comes time for the marriage, says, no, I don't want you, which would be the absolute worst because you were supposed to get married, you know, from their youth, you know, from, from childhood. And then he just takes a look and for whatever reason says, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And God says, I'm calling you. you you've been rejected. I want you. God has died for us while we were his enemy. He died for us while we were rejected him. He died for us, and now he calls us. And this is what he's telling Israel. I have called you. You're not, you're not completely rejected. You're not turned away. And it is easy for us as human beings to get into this place where we just look around and say, no, everything's bad. Everything's, you know, I'm bad. Nobody wants me. Everything's bad. I've been rejected by everybody. And I see that even out in the prison. So many of these guys feel like they've been rejected by everybody. And they have a hard time with the idea that God would want them. And that anybody would want them because of where they're at. This is this picture. This is the picture that God's saying. He goes, I have called you to me, those of you who think you're rejected completely. Or are rejected is the, is the picture he's looking. These are people... You know, the first part was the ones who, who feel forsaken and grieved in their spirit. Those are feelings. Mm -hmm. The last one is the, the, the woman who was betrothed who was rejected. Okay, so he says, if you feel it, or even if you are, I'm calling you. And this is the beauty of what we have with God. He wants us. Now, I sometimes look at what, my life and go, God, I don't understand why you'd want me at all, but you want me and I'm amazed by it, and because he wants me, I know that he wants everybody else, and go, wow, God, you know, don't understand how or why you would want, want us, but you do. And here he's making that call. I have called you. Even though you think you're rejected, even if you are rejected, I have called you. And then it, 
Then it goes into verse 27, or 7 rather, for a small moment I have forsaken you. And this idea of a small moment is kind of an in, in, interesting word because in Hebrew it literally is, is for, for an insignificant instant is what it really is. You know, insignificant instant. God says, just for, just for a very small moment, I have disciplined you. And, you know, when I was growing up, I had a good father. When, when we were disciplined, we would get our, we'd get our spank and we'd be in trouble and then we'd get our hug and we'd get the love on top of it. And I know not all families get that, but this is what God's saying. For that moment, I had to discipline you and you felt rejected. But now I'm going to give you the hug and know that you're, in, that you're still loved. And that's what God does to us. He disciplines us. He gives us the consequence for our sins and then he walks right through it, holds, us, holds our hand and walks us through the consequence if we'll allow him to. But as human beings, oftentimes we push him back. You know, nope, don't want you. You, you, you uh, let bad things happen to me. You know, yes, it was my fault, but you let them happen. And you know, we push him away. And he says, for that insignificant instant, <laughs> you were rejected. Or disciplined would be a better word in there. Disciplined. But... With great mercies, I have gathered you. you know, I have reached in and gathered you in. And so we, this is the beauty of what God does for us. He loves us when we feel like we're totally worthless. He calls us to himself. When he disciplines us, we feel like we've been rejected. But then he it says, it's just for a very short time. And then I'm going to gather you into my arms. And I'm going to love you. We're going to walk through the problem that you created in, your, in, in the first place. And this is why I keep coming back to Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good, not most things, not some things, not just the things that God, God allowed, but all things. Even when I totally mess up my life in every portion of my life, God says, it's still going to work out for good. Because he gathers us up, he, and he grabs hold of us, and he carries us through the problems and the consequences. It doesn't get rid of the consequences, but it's a lot easier to walk through consequences with God on my side and holding me than by myself. And this is what he's saying. I'm going to do that. Verse 8 says, And in a little wrath I hid my, my face from you. And again, this word little is the same word for, for small. You know, it is just for an instant. Just for an instant. God judges. And he still, he goes... But the everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God has mercy. And this mercy always falls on us when we really think about it. No matter how bad the consequences are, they're not as bad as they should be. Because what is the consequence of any disobedience? Death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. So God always gives us mercy in the midst of our dis, dis, uh, disobedience and, and punishment because we deserve death. And eventually we will die. Usually not because of the consequences of our sins, but it could be. And God at that time says, okay, it's time for you to come home because you're just not paying attention, you're not listening, and we're going to bring you home. And, but usually he gives us mercy not giving us what we deserve. And he lets us live. Now, I do know that there's some people out there that wish that God had let them die because of their consequences, because they feel like it's too bad and too hard. But you know, even that, God gives us the strength to get through anything when we lean on him. And this is the important thing. When we lean on him, we have the opportunity even if we're on a hospital bed or a hospice bed to minister to other people. I've seen this happen for Christians in, in hospice. They're there to die and they're witnessing to the nurses and the staff taking care of them and giving the gospel message out even though they're dying and it just blows people away. Like, how can this person be so calm? Because they know where they're headed. And this is why traditionally, this is as we look at this big you know, pandemic thing going on with coronavirus, you know, the church has traditionally gone into the troubled areas to minister and bring the gospel because what is important is not this life. 
You know, our world is busy trying to protect lives for this, this period of time in our life. The church is worried about your eternal destiny. So we will go into places, we will do things to be able to bring people to Christ, even if it means our death, because we know where we're going. If we're saved, we know we're going to heaven. So it's not a big deal for us to reach into somebody's life and say, let me help you. And they're going, but you might die. I know where I'm going. I want you to know where you're going. So I'm going to bring God into your situation. And this is why it's important for us. God allows it. And sometimes he lets his saints die. In Psalms, it says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. When we truly understand that this is not our home, I don't worry about this life. Not that I'm going to go out and commit suicide or anything to get to heaven faster, but I am not worried about death. When I was a teenager, I, always, I, I used to taunt the, the bullies with, the worst thing you can do is almost kill me. You know, and they're going, what? They thought I was nuts. You know, they go, well, I could kill you. I go, that'd be great. I'd go to heaven. The worst thing you can do is almost kill me, and, I, and, I wouldn't, and I'd have to suffer pain. And even then, that wouldn't be the end of the world. <laughs> You know, so this is what we look at. What is our attitude toward what we're going through? Am I looking at it and saying, okay, I'm suffering. Thank you, God. You've got a reason for it. You're going you're gonna to turn it to good somehow. You know, if he keeps me alive, there's a reason. If I die, I was done. You know, Paul said, I'm torn betwixt the two to die and go to heaven, which is better, or to stay with you and, and minister the gospel. Both were good things. But he's saying, I really want to go to heaven, but if God wants me to minister the gospel, I'm going to stay here and minister the gospel. And I understand that. I'm looking forward to the day I die and go to heaven. And you know, do I want it to happen right away? In some ways, yes. <laughs> but you know, but when I'm, while I'm here, I want to minister to people as much as possible, bring people to Christ, help people follow God in a stronger way. And this really goes down to show us what is our attitude toward what's going on for us. This is why I refused in, you know, for our church to, be, to stop services because I want to be available when people are out there wanting to find God, they're going to come to the churches. And I want to be there to be able to say, yes, God cares for you and has a plan for you. you know, I don't want them to see a closed door and say, well, I guess their God's no better than what I've been following. And unfortunately, that's what's going to happen to a lot of these churches. And yes, they're broadcasting their service and everything, but the people who want help aren't going to go to the websites and go find, go find. They want to find a person who can tell them about the God who, who cares. Well, more people than not, but it's... Yeah. That's because we're an old town. <laughs> We're, we're tired, full of old retired people, so. <laughs> but he says, he gives us an everlasting kindness. This is the beauty of God. He doesn't change. He loves everybody. And this is why I am absolutely convinced at the white throne judgment, when God has to send these people to hell, there's probably going to be tears in his eyes as he's sending them to hell. He's not licking his chops saying, well, it's about time you got what you deserved. He created everybody. And the last thing he wants to do is send anybody to hell, but if that's what they want, he's going to give them what they wanted, but he's not going to be happy about it. He's not going to be up on the throne laughing about his judgments. He's going to be very sorrowful, even though he knows they deserve it, even though he, they, he knows that that's what they, they wanted by rejecting him, he's not going to be up there laughing and having a good time sending everybody to hell. And this needs to be our attitude toward the lost. You know, I hate it when I see people get excited when people suffer, mm-hmm. even if they deserve it. And I understand there are some people that really, you know, that, that, that uh, probably deserve to suffer. But I don't want to see them suffer because I want to see them go to heaven. Now, if suffering will get them to turn to God, then great. God, give them all the suffering that they need. But let's be there to help them through that suffering and present the gospel. And... His everlasting kindness, he will have mercy. And then he goes into verse 9. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I would not be wroth with you nor rebuke you. So this one kind of, we have to remember first off the story of Noah. 
God, during Noah's day, the world was so wicked that everybody did what they wanted to do, whatever was in their imagination. And whatever they imagined, they did. And that tells us they were pretty bad. We're not quite there yet, and we have people that are imagining some very wicked things. And Noah's day was the population of the world was doing this. And God says, I'm going to destroy the world. And we're bad, but we're not there yet. We're not there, otherwise we would be at the, we, the church would be taken. But we are getting pretty close to it. How close are we? I don't know, but... Well, they're acting bad now. We've got lots of people acting bad. But it's not new. This has happened in the past and will happen again. And everything that God says is good, people are saying is bad. And what people, God says is, is bad, people are saying is good. So we're getting very close to the times of Noah. And God says judgment came at that time. And he said he's promised, here he's again reiterating the promise, I promised that I would not flood the entire world again. That doesn't mean he's not going to judge, but he says I'm not going to judge the whole world again with water. And so therefore, God gives us mercy. His mercy is so abundant to people. He gives the people time and chance and chance and chance and chance to come to him before he brings judgment. And now I'm glad that God does because I've taken many chances, even as a Christian, I've had <laughs> taken many of the chances that God has given me and not responded as quickly as I should have. And he says, I keep doing this so that I would not be wroth and rebuke you. Jesus died, and because Jesus died, God can look at us and give us grace and give us mercy because Jesus covered our, the sins of the world and God says it's coming there's going to come a time when he judges the whole world and just around the corner and I don't know how far a corner is in God's perspective <laughs> but we are getting really close to the, the second coming of Christ we're a lot closer than we were 2,000 years ago when the, when the apostles thought it was just around the corner and we are a lot closer than, than we were when I first got saved 40 years ago. Will it happen in my lifetime? I don't know. It sure looks like it's going to, but I know a lot of preachers on the radio that have died since they, since they said they expected it in their lifetime. Paul expected it in his life. Peter expected it in his life. You know, why? Because things are evil. Things are evil. And it only seems to be getting more evil. If we have a great revival, it might, it might put it off a little bit. But our goal is to say, God, we're going to serve you. We're going to serve you until, the, until it's time. Then he's going to take, eventually he's going to take the church away. And Satan gets to reign on this world with a much freer hand. Not a completely free hand, but a much freer hand for seven years. Rapture, Rapture the church will be taken away to heaven while Satan, Satan gets to have fun on this world for a tribulation period. We don't know when that's going to happen. And as soon as that happens, Satan is pretty much not given a complete free hand, otherwise he'd kill everybody in the world. But he's going to be given a lot of leeway in this world to cause havoc. That's before the thousand-year thousand reign. We have the rapture of the church, the church taken away. 144,000 Jewish believers will be the evangelists during the seven-year tribulation period. In halfway through, the, the, the Satan will rule as the Antichrist. He will make a covenant with Israel. They'll build their new temple, the third temple. They'll start worshiping. Halfway through that, he will stand up and declare that he is God, not their, not their Messiah that they were expecting, but that he is God and demand worship. They will, they will finally realize that they've been tricked and they, they've rejected God. God will protect them for the last three and a half years from being totally wiped out. And then Jesus will return and Satan will be cast into hell for a thousand years and the demons and everybody and we will have a thousand year reign of Christ on this world in relative peace. But people still want to sin. And at the end of that time, Satan will be released and the people will have a chance to rebel against God one last time. And then the white throne judgment and those who've rejected God will be thrown into to the everlasting pit uh, the lake of fire, where they will be in punishment for, the, for eternity with Satan and the demons. 
The, yeah. the heavens and earth will be destroyed, and the new heaven and earth will be created, the new, new Jeru- the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven, and we will have our perfect life from that point on. Now I get confused sometimes. Um, the rapture can come anytime. Anytime. And so all that stuff that we just talked about is afterwards. After the rapture. Yes, yeah, so the rapture. Now, this is what I believe, this is what the Southern Baptist as a general group believe, that... There are groups that believe that you will be raptured in the middle. That's not biblical as far as I'm con- concerned, and we can talk about that later on. And there's some people that say, no, there's no such thing as a rapture. Uh, and so we, I fully believe in the, in the rapture of the church before any of this thing happens. That means it can be any time, and that's part of the reason. God says, I'm going to snatch you away. If it's in the middle, then, then all i got to do is start looking for the rapture to start, and I know in three and a half years we're gone, and that's no longer, no longer in any time. Uh, so that's why you said that it's dark and secret and not, you don't know when he's going to be there. Right. So he can be at any time. And that's the picture of a Jewish wedding where the bridegroom comes to his, to his bride's home and takes her away for the wedding party, which lasts seven days. And uh, then they are officially husband and wife at the end of the seven days. And that's part of that picture because we're going to have the, the wedding feast of the Lamb during that period of the tribulation period, so he has to have his bride with him to have a wedding feast. So, so there are a lot of, lot of little things that go into that whole thing, and I've got a lot of verses. If you're really interested, I can give you all the verses on it, and so, but not right this moment. <laughs> I didn't mean to get into the end times teaching here on this one, but that's fine. Uh, we, you know, I love teaching about the end times, but. I also love teaching about things that are practical to day-to-day living even more. I know, the, I know the end times, and I know when we did our Revelation class here, we ended up with 20 and 30 people in each of the classes because everybody always wants to know what's coming. So if I wanted to really fill this place, all I got to do is say, we're going to do a Revelation class, and, you know, and we would fill this place up again. I need two or three tables in here, or we'd be doing it in the sanctuary uh, because it... That is a way to draw a crowd. But I've done Revelation. We're not doing Revelation again until I get done with the rest of it. Uh, so, so he says, because I have sworn mercy to you when Noah's time, I'm, I've got, I'm not going to be that wrath, angry. And verse 10 says, for the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness will not depart from you, neither will, shall the covenant of my peace be removed says the Lord that has mercy on you. When we're his, nothing will ever take God's mercy away from us. And this is something we've got to really get hold of. God does not deal harshly with his children. He doesn't really deal all that harshly with the world. Yes, he lets things happen to him because he's trying to draw them to him. He lets discipline come our way so he can, we will draw closer to him, but he never abandons us. And he even says that the hills will disappear and the mountains be re- removed before I would give, give up on you. And he says, even then, I'm not giving up on you. So he goes, even if you do remove those things, I'm still not giving up on you. This is the beauty of God's love, the steadfast love of God. Why can we depend upon his love? Because his love is objective. He says he's going to love us and he's going to love us because he has true love. True agape or godly love is objective. He, he, it is there because he says it's there. He chooses to love. And that's what real love is. If it's subjective love, if I, you do things that I don't like anymore, then I don't love you. That's subjective love. You make me mad enough at you that I, that I no longer feel like I love you and you don't deserve it, then I don't love you. Objective love is God's love. He says he loves us. And because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he will not unlove us. And that's the great, that is where our confidence is. That that gives us confidence in God because he is the same and he says he loves us. He is never going to unlove us because his love is not subjective. We cannot do anything to make him love us more or love us less than he already loves us. Unconditional. Right. Same thing. Agape, unconditional, objective. I like the term objective because it's something that the world understands more than unconditional. 
but objective love just says, I love you. And I, because, and I will love you until I choose not to love you. Uh, and because God doesn't change, he will never choose to not love us. Now, we may go in thinking that we love somebody objectively and choose to love them. You know, and we're human, and we change, so we might decide to choose not to love somebody. But when I, when I do counseling for marriage, I always talk to people about what true love is and do you truly love the person that you're wanting to get married to. And if they can't tell me that they are choosing to love somebody, you know, then we're not going to go forward with that, with that marriage because I, because I want people to realize that if you, cho- you tell me five years later that you don't love them, then it is now your choice to not love them, not your emotional subjective love. And so we want to make sure they're making their decision based on real love. And that's what God's love for us is. So when we choose to love God, it is supposed to be objective love back to him. God, I choose to love you and I don't care what happens. And God's never going to do anything to to not deserve our love, but our love still needs to be objective. God, I choose to love you, so even when I'm in the middle of a trial or a test or a temptation or a consequence for my sin, I'm still going to love you and trust you because I have chosen to love you because that's God's love for us. And that's our love for each other as a body of Christ. I choose to love the body of Christ. Does that mean everybody in the body of Christ deserves love? Most of us don't deserve it. None of us deserve it at all. Some, don't, some really don't deserve it. But the point is, we choose to love them anyway. And that is what Jesus said. You will show that you're my disciples by your love one for another. Your chosen love that's going to do what's good for each other in spite of the way we behave and the way we act and the things we say and the things we do. Because people just aren't all at the same spiritual spot. And some people in the church aren't even saved. You know, they're not, some aren't saved, some aren't, some aren't mature, some are just little babies running around. And yes, I know in our day and age, people are not patient with babies, but we're supposed to be patient with babies because they're being babies. And there's lots of Christians out there that are just babies. When they, when they get their feelings hurt, they, they yell and scream and holler, just like babies do when they're not, not happy. You know, they get to be that toddler at two years old and they pout. You know, you know I didn't get my way. I, nobody likes me. And, you know, and we just have to understand that Christians are in that place often. And we need to love them. They're going to grow eventually, maybe, hopefully. <laughs> if they're in a good church, they should grow. They should be getting more mature. But I have seen people who have been Christians for decades that are still tiny babies whining and crying about everything not willing to feed themselves, not willing to even get the milk of the word. And then you start wondering, are they even saved? And, you know, that's between them and God. But, you know, there is a point where we say, it's time for you to grow up. But we still have to do that in love, just as God does with us and says, okay, let's, let's get you to grow up a little bit. Let's put some pressure on you to get you to grow up. And so we see this happening here, and he says, I love you, and I'm never going to give up. Even if everything you see around you gets worn away and and gone, I will not give up. And I will not give up my covenant of peace with you. And we've talked about this. Peace is a wonderful word in, in Hebrew. It is all about trusting God and having true peace. And peace is the definition in in Greek for peace is the tranquil state of a soul who is assured of his destination with God and therefore not worrying because we know where we're headed. The absolute best thing that could happen to us in this world is that we die and go to heaven. Now, that's the Christian's attitude. You know, I'm going to take your head off. Oh, thank you. Praise God. You're going to send me to heaven early? We're going to burn you at the stake. Well, I'm not looking, to, looking forward to burning at the stake, but thank you, you're going to send me to heaven. You know, we, you know I'm going to beat you to death. Well, thank you, I'm not looking forward to the beating, but you're going to send me to heaven. Just make sure you do the whole job and, and send me to heaven. You know, in the cross and the switchblade, uh, Nikki Cruz threatened uh, David Wilkerson and said, I'm going to cut you, I'm going to cut you up into 100 pieces. And, he, and David said, and every piece of will say, God, God loves you. Because that was what Nikki was upset about. 
kept telling him that God loved him. So he says, okay, cut me up, but every piece is going to say God loves you. Is that our attitude when we face trials? God, I am ready. If you're, if you're ready to take me home, I'm ready to go. Today is today, or do we cower in fear like the world does? Because we're so worried about this life. And if we're worried about this life, it will always affect everything that we do with God. We need to be able to say, God, I'm focused on heaven. I want to go there. If you, well, while you've got work for me down here, I'm going to do all the work for you here, and I'll work, I'll work for 80, 100, 1,000 years if you want, and I'll do the work you want, but God, I'm looking forward to the day that I get to step across that, the Jordan and be in heaven with you. Is that our attitude? You know, and that needs to be our attitude because that will motivate us to go forward because that's our peace. This is not our home. It doesn't matter to me what happens to me in this lifetime because this is not home. This is only temporary. And even if somehow I managed to live a thousand years on this world, which isn't going to happen, but you know, say it did, what is a thousand years compared to eternity? When I've been in heaven for, for a billion years and, you know, and look back, I'm going to go, what was that life all about? I was so worried about that. You know, there, there, there's nothing there, if I even remember it at all. So this needs to be our attitude as we're looking forward. This world cannot hold our heart. If it's holding our heart, we will not be serving God. Even if I went through as close to hell as I could walking on this world for my entire life and never had anything good seem to happen, it's still nothing compared to, in comparison when I enter heaven. And that's going to be an important thing for us. We're, we're there and it's going to be, all right, God, I'm here. Oh, well, I'm sure we will remember, or we'll remember our, our family. One, I think it was Great Glory who said, we're not going to be more stupid in heaven than we are here. So we can remember our family here. We're not going to, we're not going to forget them in heaven. Uh, and this is the thing about it. We are one and we are a family and I don't think we're going to forget each other. And we're going to even have it better there because we'll have a divine knowledge of everybody and probably know everybody because they're all family. Because we even see it in the, in the New Testament. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was glorified, there appeared Moses and Elijah, and they knew who they were. Now, they had not seen pictures of Moses and Elijah. How did they know who they were? Because the environment they were in was basically heaven, even, you know, and so they got to know the same. The point that that story tells us that when we get to heaven, we're going to know Adam and Eve, we're going to know Moses, we're going to know Elijah, and if we're going to know them, we're going to know our family. <laughs> so... Because we're not going to look, and this is something that kind of mind boggles me because I've traveled all my life. I never, until recently, until the last 30 years, I've never stayed in the same place for longer than two years. You know, so I've always been wondering, you know, what will I look like to people? Uh, you all know the, the Ralph Wills from this, this time period who's grown a lot from the ones who knew me you know, 20 years ago, who knew me 30 years ago, and my appearance is nothing like it used to be when I first got married. We don't look the same. How will people know us in heaven? You know, what will they see us as? You know, what kind of form or body will we have? I don't know. But the one thing I'm absolutely sure, everybody who's known me all my life, is gonna, who's in heaven, is going to know me. And I will know them. Because the same thing, the guys I knew 20, 30, 40 years ago, that I don't, haven't seen in all those years, but I know they're saved, I'm going to know them when I get there. How? Who knows? God's going to give us a different brain, a different way of thinking, a different way of seeing. And we have spiritual bodies in that place until we get, the, get to the resurrection and get our body in the new heaven and the new earth when we get the new glorified bodies that are perfect. And who knows what those bodies are going to be like. All right, verse 11. Oh, you afflicted, tossed with tempest and not comforted, Behold, I will lay your stones with, a, with fan colors and lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your windows of agates and your gates of carbuncles and your borders of pleasant stones. And all your children shall be taught of the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness shall you be established for you shall be, be far from oppression for you shall not fear 
and from, and from terror, for it will, shall not come near you. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the smith that blows the coals of the fire and that brings forth the instruments of his work, and, and I have created the waster to destroy. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and the righteousness is of me, says the Lord. This last section of this chapter, we're drifting into the, to the millennial kingdom, the reign of Christ. There is not perfection during this period of time. We're told that during the millennial kingdom, Jesus reigns with an iron scepter. What does that mean? He forces obedience. Now, we talk about people trying to force obedience. We talk about the thought police. But you can imagine God is the ultimate thought police. Now, we, we have in our books all the time hate crimes. If you commit a crime for the wrong reasons, and somehow they're reading our minds to know why we do what we do, to charge us with these things. But in God's case... You know, I, I kind of picture this. You're thinking about maybe robbing the bank and, and the angels come knocking at your door saying, you're, you're under arrest. What? You thought about it. <laughs> you know, no, I didn't. Yep, God says you did. <laughs> you know, uh, and this is what he's talking about. You know, this is a beautiful picture. What's going to happen during that period of time? Oh, you that are afflicted and tossed with its storms, and are not consoled, behold, I will lay your stones with fan stones. And this is uh, a bluish white block of stone. And so it's got some pretty color to it. And it's very precious. And lay a foundation with sapphires. God says, I'm going to give you, you think you're abandoned, you think you are comforted, not, or not consoled. He goes, I've got a foundation for you. When we stand on the foundation of God, the rock of God, we cannot be shaken. We're talking about earthquakes and, and, and uh, floods and everything. You know, God says, I've given you a foundation that is not breakable, that is sturdy, that cannot fall apart. And he says, I have got it up. And then he gives this beautiful picture of windows of agates, gates of carbuncles, and your, and your borders with pleasant stones. I don't know what all, the, all these colors are and everything, but I do know most of these are very press, precious items. But this picture right here that we're getting into, if you look at uh, Revelation 21, it's the picture... Okay, go ahead and read it if you're there. 21, uh, uh, 18 through 27, a long section. So the construction of its walls was of jasper, and the city... The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, and the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonox, the sixth sardius, and the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth cryosphase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. That's the beauty of the of the new heaven and new earth. You know, God has got great blessing for us, and He treats that as just a simple building. You know, God God builds God builds his buildings in, in the new heaven and new earth with, with, with things that we call precious, which makes me wonder, what does he call precious? And I know the answer to that. He calls us precious. The stuff, they're nothing. But those of us who have chosen him are extremely, I mean, all creation is precious to him, but those that have chosen him are extremely precious to him and greatly loved. And he's going to build this beautiful heaven and earth and the new Jerusalem comes down and this is that building that Jesus told the disciples I go to prepare a place for you and many pastors and I kind of agree with them it took God seven days to create the world that is beautiful and so organized and and gorgeous and complex beyond anything we can can comprehend he's been working on over 2,000 years on our home. 
to spend eternity in? What kind of home is he creating that takes that long to create for God? We can't even fathom what that would be like. And we see the, nothing like that, even what we read about yeah. in the scriptures. Because you've got to keep in mind, God is in a completely different realm and, and, and thought than we are, trying to communicate to us things about heaven. It would, you know, most people have considered it like God, somebody trying to tell an aborigine what snow is. You know, you've lived in, the, you've lived in this dry barren, hot place that barely gets rain. Let me tell you about snow. How do you describe it? Well, it's, it's frozen water drops. What's frozen water drops? You know, well, it's, it's really light white stuff. You mean ash? You know, but you can understand how hard this would be to go through, and God is trying to tell us about heaven. He's trying to tell us about who he is when he is so much more than what we can comprehend, and he's trying to bring it down into simple terms for us to even begin to understand it with our little pea brains that we have compared to his, and saying, this is who I am. This is what heaven's going to be like. And we're going we're to get to heaven, and we're going we're, we're to see God and go, hold it, you didn't, you didn't describe yourself very well. <laughs> heaven, you didn't even come close to describing heaven to us. And he's going, well, I couldn't. You had no understanding of what it was going to be like. You had no understanding of what I'm like. And it'll be just a beautiful thing for him to be able to take us and sit with us and lift us up and say, here's the fulfillment of what I tried to tell you about. And this is the thing, when we are, before we're saved and people are trying to tell us about God, about the Bible, we're trying to read the Bible, and none of it makes any sense because we don't have the spiritual connection to be able to do it, to even begin to understand it. And then we get saved, and all of a sudden, the Word starts coming alive, and God becomes real to us. And we're going, oh, that's what they were talking about. That's when we realized that true life didn't even begin until we got saved. No matter, even, even the handful of people who thought they were happy before they got saved... They knew that there was an emptiness in their life and they get saved and all of a sudden that emptiness is filled and they're going, wow, this is, this is life. Even at 10 years old, I realized I had life when I got saved. I know somebody when they were four years old got saved and they knew that they had life. And before we are saved, all we have is a body and a soul trying to get through this life. And God says, I'm going to make you born again. I'm going to give you a spirit. I'm going to give you a spirit that is going to be satisfied with me, which is what we were created with. The day that Adam and Eve sinned, their spirit died. And they became a body and soul with a dead spirit. And all of their children ever since have been born body and soul with a dead spirit without being turned over to God. And that third part is critical for true life and eternal life. And the body and soul is what will go to hell and suffer for all of eternity. And God's saying, I wanted to give you true life. I wanted to make you back and complete to what you were supposed to be. Body, soul, and spirit. Just as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is three, we are three. And when we get united with God, we become even more. And we become one with him. And it's a beautiful thing. We don't become God, but we become one with him. One of the great things in the, in the story of Adam and Eve is the verse that says, and their name was Adam. They were one the way God looked at them. When we become a Christian, we become one with God and become part of him and him being part of us. And it's a very, very interesting being. It doesn't mean we become God, you know, but, but we become one with him. Just as a husband and wife are supposed to be one, one being and so closely tied together that they really do start becoming one. But it says, verse 13, all your children shall be taught of the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. So the children during this period will learn about God. No, no separation of church and state no, because Jesus is ruling. He's going to say, you're going to teach them about me. It'll be a beautiful time. 
But the millennial is also the time when the last bastion of Satan's lie is that if we just had a perfect environment, people would be good. Well, it wasn't true in Adam and Eve's day. And at the end of the millennial kingdom, there will be a, a lot of people who reject God and, and go to war against God. You know, one, one last battle where they're killed virtually instantly, but it'll be that last proof. They had a thousand years of peace and, and wonderful life, utopia, and still rebelled against God. Rebelled against the, all of that. And it'll be that last one more push. Utopia with Adam and Eve failed, and utopia at the end will fail. The people will reject God because people's pride will get in the way. The righteous shall be established, and you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. The millennial kingdom will be a time of total peace. It tells us that the child will play with the asp at the asp's nest, the lion will, and the, uh, the and lamb will lie together. Uh, the animals will be returned to their peaceful coexistence that they're supposed to have, and we will be at peace like we have never known, other than Adam and Eve's time, which, however long that was. But for a thousand years, there'll be a peace. And, it, and everything will be back the way it was. And we're told that if somebody dies at 100, he'll be considered a child. You know, because people are going to be back to living. Because they're going to be back to living to the nine, 900 to 1,000 years. There'll be people that live the entire 1,000 years. And longevity will be re restored. And still, people will reject God. Even having lived in that perfection, there'll be people who reject God. And God says, during that time, you're not going to be oppressed. You're not going to have anything to fear. There won't be any terror. And he goes, behold, in verse 15, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against me shall fall for your sake. So those people who are trying to gather together to cause problems, God's going to say, I'm going to take care of them. Whether he, and he's going to be before they do any harm. You know, he may let them gather together and then take them in. He may take them in as they're thinking about gathering. Who knows? That's between him. But he says, they shall fall. There shall not be anything to worry about because God will deal with it. He'll be dealing with it the way people say they want him to deal with it today. Well, God could stop it, can't he? Yes, God could stop all this stuff, but he's giving people enough rope to hang themselves with which means that there's consequences for their actions and those consequences sometimes affect other people that we like to call innocent, but there really aren't any innocent people in this world. Everybody is born dead. There is nobody who doesn't deserve anything that happens to them. You know, the world will ask us all the time, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? My, my statement is you're asking the very wrong question is why does good things happen to all of us bad people? Anything good that happens to us is a, is a mercy of God and the grace of God. So we need to be careful how we think. You know, and in this millennial kingdom, God's going to stop things from happening before they become our way. There's not going to be any troubles on that. He's going to stop all of those things. And verse 25 says, Behold, I have created the smith that blows the coals of the fire and that brings forth the instruments of his work, and I have created the waster to destroy. So God says, I've given the skills to both. The blacksmith who pre creates your plows and your pruning hooks and your saws and all the things that could be dangerous. And he also, this is kind of interesting, the waster, the one that brings destruction. God knows that protection is needed. He knows that these things are happening. He says, I provided for that too. And this is why God created governments. Government is supposed to protect the people from evil. Now, sometimes our government, like they're trying to do now, goes way overboard to protect. But their job is to protect. When God is ruling in the millennial kingdom, he will protect to the max. You know, bad things will not be happening during that period of time. But man who has gone through the tribulation period, still have a sin nature in them. Will still want to do evil because we've said that many times, Satan does not have to tempt us to do evil. 
We can do plenty of evil on our own because we have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We will, we will do bad on our own. Now, Satan likes to help us. You know, he'll put the thoughts in. He'll, he'll, he'll arrange for just the right person to come by for you to feel get lustful or get you angry. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll prod us sometimes. He'll blow the coals. He'll, he'll fan the flames. He will try to do whatever it takes sometimes. And most of the time, we don't even need him in our life to, to, to be in trouble. We do a good job on our own. And when we get to, those who stand before God will realize that they did a lot of wrong on their own. A lot of wrong on their own without even being tempted. And so he's saying here that God says, I'm going to keep all those things away from you. And I'm going to protect you. But you know, we're still going to end up having a problem. And then this last verse is always taken out of context because it's talking about the millennial kingdom. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue shall re- that rise against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is in me, says the Lord. During that period of time, nothing will come against us. You know, now, this one is oftentimes taken out of context to, to use, a, well, nothing, no, no weapon formed against us can harm us. Well, that is true, but it's not in this, not in this time frame. Okay, the statement is true, but it's talking about the millennial kingdom, not today. Now, God does protect us, and I will agree. And this is why I don't worry about the virus or anything else. If I'm where God wants me to be, it doesn't matter what comes my way, nothing's going to harm me. When God is ready to bring me home, it doesn't matter how well I protect myself or try to protect myself, I'm going home. Our lives are in his hands. That doesn't mean we go out and tempt fate. But it also means that I'm not worried about anything out there because it is in God's control. You know, I'm not going to run into the middle of the, of the hospital and give everybody you know, the, the coronavirus ward and give everybody a hug and say, okay, God, I'm, I'm going to believe that. Now, if God told me to do it, I'd do it. But you know, I'm not going to go out there and tempt fate and say, let me, just, let me go give them all hugs and kisses and, I'm gonna, and God's going to protect me. No, that's not what he says to do. But if he said go there and minister to them, I'm going to go there because he's going to say, if, if he wants me to get it, I'm going to get it. And if I don't get it, and he doesn't want me to get it, I don't care what I do, I'm not getting it. And this is the important thing. When we're in the center of God's will, it doesn't matter where we're at. We can be in the most violent neighborhood in existence, and if God has told us to be there, we're safe. And we could be in the safest neighborhood that has ever existed, and if we're not supposed to be there, or it's time to go home, we're in trouble. <laughs> because it's, we are going to be taken. It's like that Meshach and Abednego. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. I've always loved their answer. Oh, yeah. You know, Nebuchadnezzar says, who can protect you from me? And their answer is really beautiful. Our God can protect us and save us, but whether he does or whether he doesn't, we will serve the Lord. They went into the fiery furnace expecting to die. I think they were as surprised as anybody else to be walking back out of the fiery furnace. They trusted that God could deliver them because he had delivered Israel through the, through the Red Sea. He had delivered them through so many other things. They were ready to die. They knew that God could deliver them but I think they went in expecting to die. And then they came out like, okay, now we, get, now we get to tell people about God. This is where we're at. When we are in the center of God's will, it doesn't matter what's going on. We want to trust God. Does it mean that nothing bad will happen to us? No, bad things happen to people all the time because we live in a fallen world. But God has got a plan no matter what happens to us. And this is our opportunity to reach out and touch people. Be, be people that are trusting God and show that God is in charge. If we get sick, we get sick. If we don't get sick, we don't get sick. If we die, we are in heaven. You know, it is a wonderful time to just stand and say, God, I trust you. What is it you want to do? And not have fear about anything this world can throw at us. 63 times in the Bible it says, fear not. And there's several others that say similar things. So, but the, there's 63 times that it says, fear not. 
God does not want us fearing anything except him because he is in control. And when he's ready for us to go home, it doesn't matter what, we're, what we do, we're going to go home. If he's not ready for us to come home and it's not our time, it doesn't matter what we're doing, we're not going home. We need to just walk with him in faith, confidence. I look forward to the day I die because I know that I'm going to go to heaven. So I'm just ready, God, how can I serve you today? What is it that you want me to do? And when I'm done serving him, he's going to say, time to come home. Whether I think I'm done serving him, or whether other people think I'm done serving him, when God says I'm done serving him, I'm going home. If, I'm, if I think I'm done serving him and God says I'm not done serving him, I'm not going home. <laughs> you know, and so we look at this and say, God, what have you got in store for me? How do you want me to serve you today? And keep walking in, in that faith. Keep reaching out to touch those around you to with the gospel message. Share the gospel. Live the gospel. You know, our most powerful tool is living the gospel and telling people that God loves them. You know, this is one of our greatest things. We don't even have to tell people the gospel message necessarily. We do eventually, but the biggest thing that we can do is tell people God loves you. One of the, one of the best tools to use for, for soul winning is John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And make sure people understand they're part of the world that God gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we've said many times that belief is not just believing in him. Well, I believe there was a Jesus. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> it's not getting you into heaven. You know, do you believe he died for your sin and are you believing him personally? And when you get to know him, it's a different thing. There's a lot of great verses for witnessing to people on. The Roman road is a really good one to, to follow. Uh, but pretty much, you're going to change it to whatever meets that person and where they're at and share with them. You know, if they're talking about being good, your goodness is not enough. You know, Isaiah 63, 4, you know, all your righteousness are as rags. You know, the best things you can do in God's sights, rags. You know, and this, this shocks people. It really does shock people that God does not see them the same way they see themselves. And that's part of the gospel message. Before people know that they need a Savior, they've got to know that they need a Savior. If I'm out in the lake swimming around with no problem and the lifeguard comes out to save me, I'm going to look at him like, what are you doing out here? I was doing just fine. Well, you know, three seconds from now, you're going to have a cramp. Well, I didn't need you, so... You know, uh, but in our life, we need, we need the Savior. We just need to recognize that we need the Savior. And the world does, needs to be brought first on to understand they are a sinner in need of a Savior. And until they understand that, they're not ready for a Savior. And it doesn't matter how much they hear, no matter how much they see, until they know that they need that Savior, they're not ready. So our job, first off, is to give them the bad news. You're going to hell. You know, not in a joyful, excited way you're going to hell, but you, know, you are headed to hell because of your sin. And get them to know that that's where that it had, but there is an answer. There is a way to avoid it, and it's not your good works. It's nothing you can do, and that's where it becomes important. We share the gospel for all of sin to come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God commended his love toward us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. If you confess the Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. Confession, repentance, and belief all wrapped together. And we need to truly understand that we need him. Without him, we can do nothing. And with him, we can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Powerful verse. But the flip side of that is without him, I can't do anything until I really understand that. I live a powerless life or a life headed for hell. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, we ask that you guide and keep us. Lord, if there's anybody listening that doesn't know you, 
We ask that today they will come to you and worship you, accept you, repent for their sin, and turn to you and have you become their Lord and Savior. Find a church and grow in you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.